Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. Well, we did a summer series in Colossians. If you were here with us, you remember that. If you don't, you can go to YouTube or YouTube page and read on that. And this letter takes place in the same vein. It was actually written at the same time. It was written to generally the same audience, but it was directly to a specific individual. And before we dive into that letter, you first have to realize that when we're speaking on the New Testament, it's written at a time way in the past. And as a student of history, I'd love to understand the why. How did things work and operate? Then when I get to heaven, I can't wait to get a rewind button and hit the rewind and see how it all fits. How did this kingdom advance? And why did God use this kingdom to take over this kingdom? How did it all fit? And so when you think about that, we're in about 33, a little past that, maybe 100 AD, right around in that vein, which means there's no internet. So some of us like to tweet, some of us like to do social media, that's where we get our news. They didn't have that. You also didn't have a mail system, per se. You did, but it was snail mail, but it's really equivalent of snails. So you think, you don't get letters every day, you don't get them every month, you might get them quarterly, maybe, depending upon if there wasn't some robbers or some sort of thugs that actually ransacked the whole issue so when letters came into an area, it was a big deal. So I always think of like the 1700s, I go back there, and you have to go even further back, because at least in the 1700s, you had newspapers that would be printed. You had the Gutenberg Press. You didn't have the Gutenberg Press way back when. You had letters that were written, and they were typically not on paper as we see it here, but they would have been on papyrus, which are reeds found in Egypt or other types of uh, animal skins. And they would have been sent and given. And so when you finally got a letter, it was a big deal because your towns are small. You're not traveling the world. You're not getting in a gas-powered car and traveling hundreds of thousands of miles every week or every day. Some of us, for our jobs, we travel thousands of miles in a year. You didn't go thousands of miles in a year. So the outside world was the outside world, and you would hear rumors from traders who would come in and tra travelers. But letters of what's happening and what's going on, you might not ever hear anything. And someone might come into your presence and you might learn about them, and they disappear, and you never see them again. So when you got a letter, it's a big deal. You would maybe gather the family together in a room, and you would read this letter to see what's happening, what's the news of the world, what's going on. And that's kind of like here. In the letter to the Colossi, Paul writes it. And Paul, you have to kind of think, when he wrote this letter and the letter to the Colossians, he was in prison and not maybe the prison that we think, but prison in the regards to that when he was in Rome, he wrote these, and he was supposed to see the emperor. And the reason he was to see the emperor was because he's on charges, and he appealed as a citizen of Rome to see the emperor. And any citizen of Rome had that ability to go to the emperor, to preside his case, kind of like the Supreme Court today. You can appeal all the way to there. It was the same way in Rome that if you held citizenship, you could go all the way to the emperor for him to hear the case and then to him either ignore you or you'd wait. So Paul would wait. Why? Because the emperor's a busy guy. You have hundreds of millions of people in the empire. 
It's snail mail. It's bureaucracy at its finest and its worst. And so to get an audience meant that you're going to spend years waiting. Paul has appealed. He's in Rome. And the way the Romans figured it out is, well, we're not going to pay to house you. Why would we waste our money to feed you, clothe you, and house you when we could just put you in house arrest and make you figure it out? But you're not leaving. And so Paul is in prison in a house somewhere in Rome as he's awaiting to go before the emperor. And the emperor said, okay, find people that'll feed you, clothe you, and house you. But by the way, you can't go get a job. You can't, you're stuck in your house. Not like today where you might have an ankle monitor. You can travel a city. No, you are stuck in your house, chained to a guard. And so Paul is there witnessing, and Paul is in Rome, and he writes a letter to the Colossian church because he's planted it. Where's Colossians? If you were to look at a map, you would find the country of Turkey in the Middle East. And that's around where the country, where right where the Colossian church and Ephesus were. And Colossians were kind of a subset of Ephesus, a smaller church. And then there's even a smaller church. And that's where Philemon takes place. And if you can think about that, if mail is very slow, it's probably when it comes in, you're gathering the family together. Think about that. You haven't heard from the outside world. There's no running water. There's no electricity. It's quiet. It's quaint. It's probably a farming community. And the city is not even the size of Westminster. It's not even the size of most areas that we would consider cities or towns. It's maybe a cluster of houses together, maybe a business or two, and the rest are scattered. And so you get a letter that comes into the town from Colossians, from probably from Ephesus that goes to Colossae, that finally comes to this podunk little town, and you get the letter. And you might have heard about the church in Colossae, and you're thinking, well, I heard about that letter that Paul wrote. I, what do you mean he wrote a letter for us? He knows about us? Because Paul didn't plant what we're about to talk about. He planted the church in Ephesus. Colossians developed out of that. And there's this other little house church. And as you get this letter, you're rallying in to read, what could Paul who started this church, who's this great apostle, who have heard rumors about him, what? We haven't met him. What's he got to say to us? And you've been in those movies, right, where they have that intro scene, and then they, they start to read the letter, and then it kind of goes this flashback. And the rest of the movie, three quarters of it, is the flashback of the time. One of the movies for me is uh, Saving Private Ryan, where he's, on the, he's coming in as an older gentleman as he's sitting and watching the gravestones, and then it goes to his memory to D-Day. And the rest of the movie is most of that, and then it flashes back to the end. And that's where I want us to go to a little bit today is you see that beginning part, and then the flashback, you're in this subset of Colossae. And Rome servants were slaves, and slavery wasn't a bad thing per se, it's not like the 1860s slavery, as we would maybe relate to it as I think of slavery. Slavery was a way to get your citizenship. It was a way to get land. It was a way to own things and a way to get in. In fact, many times, if you were a slave of somebody, the same respect that was due to your owner was given to you. Slaves were doctors. Slaves were lawyers. Slaves were bankers. Slaves were politicians. Slaves were a lot of things. And this slave in particular had it pretty good. He was in a house and as he took care of the house and property, he was probably treated very fairly. By all accounts, it was that case. He was entrusted, and as he gained trust, more trust was given to him. But you see, the slave had an issue. And the slave's issue was it was all about him. And even though he wanted to do what was right, he didn't care to. If you think about that, the slave probably wants citizenship. He probably wants land, probably wants to get in. He's a slave, though. It's demeaning. 
puts down. And as you think about that, this slave probably wants his freedom. And so he bides his time and he bides his time. And inside the house, there's a church. And in that church, he hears about Jesus, doesn't really know much about Jesus, but hears about him. He hears about his owner, what he does, and he hears the good, he hears the hymns, he hears it all. And he makes his escape. He plans and he bides. Sunday comes, and for the first day of the week, the slave says that's when they meet. I'll gather the material. If I leave on the next day, it'll look all good. And the people that meet in this house, this church, I can take all of their things too. And so he gathers up all of his things. He gathers up all his supplies. He bides his time. The church day happens on Sunday. And Sunday was the first day of the week, if you're not aware of that, back in the day. Sunday was work. There was no weekend. It was work day. But this church, for some reason, to this slave, didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so as he gathered there, he heard the rumors. He'd seen it on display for years and years. He'd gained his master's trust, and then he made his escape. He took his clothes. He took all of the money that he could grab quickly that he was entrusted to. And as all, it would say, all roads lead to Rome, he made his way to Rome, leaving his master in the dust. And at some point, somewhere in Rome, he lost it all. Because a slave, you weren't marked. You didn't have a brand on you. You weren't looked any differently. In fact, Rome had a debate one time in the Senate that said, should we mark the slaves? Why? Because there's so many. A third of the population was most likely slaves. And they said, we don't need to mark the slaves with any type of armband or any type of tattoo because if they realized how numerous they were, they probably could overrun us. And the fear was there. And so they never marked the slaves. But if you've run away, the opportunity was still there to be hurt. Just like the 1860s, was slavery okay in the remnant? Yeah, it was a normal part of life. You also had the evil part of it too. You could be branded thief, runaway. And if you didn't have the right master, you better believe you're going to be in trouble and you're going to be hurt. And so this slave says, I'm not making any mistakes. I'm hitting the ground running. I'm going to go incognito. I'm going to buy the best clothes. And I'm going to get what I deserve because I deserve this. It's all about me. And as he goes into Rome, he probably makes some bad investments. He probably goes to the business quarter. He has to be incognito, so he's got to spend a little more to hide his identity. He doesn't have his paperwork because he's a slave. And if people really found out who he was, they would kick him out. They might torture him. They might crucify him. They might send him back. They might do who knows what. And somewhere, the slave makes the reality check. I've lost the money. I'm down on my luck. I don't have anywhere to go. And somewhere in the back of his thoughts, he's thinking, it would have been nice if I had stayed at the master's house. I was fed, clothed. And you know, those people that met on Sunday, they were just different. They prayed for one another. They served. They self-sacrificed for one another. I got to find them. Where are they? And somewhere in that strange city of Rome, not New York City, not GPS located, slums, disgusting, worst case, worst smells. You don't really have much of a sewer system. You do, but you don't. Somewhere in the city of Rome, this slave meanders and finds most likely the church that was in Rome. He knew what to look for because in his master's house, he knew what the Christians acted like and did and how they talked. And so he followed the rumor trail to find the church. The church found out about Paul, and this man found himself in Paul's quarter and started to know who is this Jesus. And that's where the story picks up, that our position in heaven, this first point if you're taking notes, should always trump our place in life 
And this, and this is why one commentator writes this, that the letter to Philemon was the most brilliant, nuanced, compelling letter of reconciliation in ancient history. It's a model of grace and charm, and as such, it can help greatly help us if we care to enhance our human relationships, especially those in the body of Christ where we have special stake in everybody's life. The slave's name would have been Onesimus, and who we're going to learn about the players is found in Philemon verse 1, that as that letter arrived to this small podunk town of a house church, Paul writes it. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, which means if you were to stop there for a moment, that Timothy is probably the one, the author. He's probably the one writing this letter. Paul is probably dictating. If you want to read about Paul, you can read all through 1st and 2nd Corinthians and read about his shipwrecks, his beatings, his abuse that he took. Timothy, because he's in house church, is there serving in Rome. He's there with Paul, probably going and feeding, probably bribing the food and the clothes. And so he's probably dictating this letter. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. There's character one, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Ripicus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house. Here is Paul, the big kahuna, the one of the apostles who has started church plants, who says, I, Paul, a prisoner, not of Rome. If you highlight that, you can circle that too. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You see, his attitude's already different. He could have said, I'm a Paul. I am the apostle. I planted churches. I'm a Jew of Jews. I am this and that. He doesn't. He says his identity isn't anything but a prisoner of Christ. He could be a prisoner of Rome. But if he goes that route, he could think, God, why did you put me in prison? I planted churches. I've traveled around for you. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been whipped. I've been stoned. I've done all of these things for you. And God, you sit me in a house and chain me to a soldier Really, God? But Paul's attitude is so different. He's saying, well, God can still use me. So then he starts to just say, fine, you're going to put me in a house? I'm going to write letters. Then I'm going to send them back to those churches that I've planted and those churches who were having hardship to clarify a few things. And I'm not going to claim my authority that he has. He has every right. And he says, no, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not this apostle. I'm a prisoner of Christ. That's my identity. Our position in heaven should always trump our place in life. We can have lots of titles, but titles are meaningless. I can have lots of titles, lead pastor, Christian. I have a master of divinity. So what? Where, what matters in life is my identity. My identity is found where? Christ. Christ says that I'm fearlessly, that I'm loved immensely, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that I am beloved. And Paul says, as reiterating, I'm a prisoner of Christ to Philemon, to Aphia, to Rikippus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus. It's important to kind of get this in our heads that he could have, he didn't. I'm a prisoner, I'm not this apostle. Grace to you and peace to all those in your house. I always thank God when I mention you in my prayers. He's starting to schmooze. You ever know those brown nosers, right? You, you all have them in the family, right? Who's the brown nosers? Or in school, right? Those that are just like, oh, teacher, right? teacher's pet, all those things. And so Paul's just schmoozing. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. He's saying, look, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And to you guys, hey, I, rem I know you. And I pray for you. And I always thank God. Why? Verse five, because I hear of your love and faith towards the Lord Jesus and, all, and for the saints. James is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. We spoke through it last year, Pastor Greg and I, real fast. But he says, faith without works is dead. 
Meaning you need both. You're not saved by works, but you need faith and you need works. Why? Because if you have faith, you produce works. That you actually do the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Those things naturally are a byproduct if you have faith. And so he's saying, look, I've heard of your love and your faith, that your actions are speaking, not just about you have this knowledge, you have this understanding of Scripture, but in fact, I hear of your love and faith towards Jesus and for the saints. And if you highlight saints, circle it, saints is not some special secondary person. It's not some second-tier or first-tier Christian. Saints is Christian, interchangeable. There's not some special sainthood as that case. It is all of us. He's saying saints. He's referring to the Christian body as a whole. Those that are Christians, he's saying right here, I have heard, I thank God for you because of your faith, because you show your love for Christ and for the saints, and I pray that your participation in faith may be effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. And so he's saying, hey, hey, Phil, we're gonna call him Phil. Hey, Phil, I've heard about you. This great apostle, he doesn't claim that. He just says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I've heard about you. It's been talked about you. It's been said about you. This podunk, backcountry, small, itty-bitty little hold, this house church, I've heard about you. I'm all the way in Rome, hundreds of thousands of miles away, and I have heard about you, and I've heard of your love for the saints. I've heard of your love for people. In fact, what you're doing, you're serving them in such great capacity and such great vigor that it's making waves, dude. Nice job. To you, to Aphia, to Aricopus, all of, wow. And if you're Philemon and you haven't heard the outside news and it flashes back, all of a sudden, it's not just Philemon in the room. It's Philemon, it's Phil, it's Aphia, his sister, probably could be a sister, could be his wife, could be one of the households, we don't know. Aricopus, another guy, and if it goes to the, pans out from the camera view, okay, they're sitting and reading this letter, but you have a few more players now that are in the room with them. The letter had to be delivered, right? Somebody has to be the one who's delivering this letter. And all of a sudden, there's this other character that we start to see on the screen and start to see that's in the room. And you start to see that the Phil, Fia, and Aricopus aren't giving the glowing eyes to this new character. They're eyeballing them. They're looking at him strangely. They're kind of thinking, I don't, I've been hurt. I don't like this guy. I'm not sure why he's here. I don't know who he is. All of these questions start to raise in our heads. So Paul goes for this thing, and he goes further. And this is where the second point comes in, that when we do wrong... We need to make it right. And when we've been wronged, we need to let it go. There's that good old Disney, let it go, let it go. Yeah, just keep that in your head. Let it go, let it go, let it go. But when we do the wrong, we need to own it. And sometimes that means saying, I'm sorry. Sometimes that's asking forgiveness. And the reality is though you ask for it, doesn't mean the other person's gonna give it. Your responsibility, so far as it depends upon you, is to ask to recognize when I did screw up, when I did mess up, that I need to go and make amends. First grade, I was in private school. I said I'd been homeschooled, private schooled, and public schooled. My mom homeschooled me through kindergarten, and then she said, that's it, you're out. I went to private school through fourth grade, and then I went to public school the rest of the way through, and then I went to a Christian college. That's kind of my quick ed background. But in first grade, I was at a Christian school, and we had a guy in there, Mike Kramer. And he won't be watching this, I doubt it. I hope not. But Mike 
wasn't your normal guy. He was a, I'll say that, yes. And, but he was a little off, just a little off. And, and Mike tried to fit in, and we didn't let him fit in. And I wasn't the ringleader. There was others that I would call the bullies or the ringleaders. But we didn't make Mike's life very easy in first grade. Now, that sticks with me. I'm 35. That's when I was seven. So you can see, long time, and you have memories, and when things stick out, they can linger with you. So in first grade, we didn't let Mike feel real good and, and connect with all of us until I remember a chapel service where Mike had been talking to some of the teachers, and then one of the teachers had the gall, I would say, to get up and chastise everybody, all of us, not just first grade, but first through eighth grade. Mike didn't fit in, and Mike felt alone, and Mike felt isolated, and he was teased and picked on, ridiculed and mocked. And so she said, who wants to be his friend? And of course, in that situation, everyone's jumping up. I'll be his friend. I'll be his friend. But it didn't seem real. No one apologized. No one said sorry. Mike felt great for a day. Fast forward. I switched to public school. Nothing I'm ever going to see Mike Kramer again. I get to high school. No idea. 10th grade gym class. Walk in. Who's staring me in the face? Mike Kramer. And I'm like, that's no, that can't be, no. And he's, we're going around getting names. I'm like, it says Mike Kramer and he's me. And I'm like, oh, first grade flashbacks. I mistreated him. I was mean to him. We go through gym class most of the year. And I say, Mike, can I pull him aside and say, Mike, did you go to Central Christian Academy? He goes, yeah, long time ago. I said, were you in first grade with Mrs. Haynes? Yeah. I said, I was in. He goes, I thought I knew you. <laughs> I was like, Mike, I am so sorry. He goes, for what? He had kind of forgotten. I didn't. I said, Mike, I picked on you. I called you names. And I'm sorry for the way I treated you. I'm sorry for the way we treated you, but I'm also sorry for the way I treated you. He said, Nick, you're forgiven. He didn't really remember much, but it stuck with me. Sometimes we get those opportunities in life where we do something, years, months, weeks, sometimes later, it comes back around, and we get the opportunity not to maybe make it, fix it, but to own it, make it right. Mike and I got to hang out the rest of that year, and I don't know where he's at today, but to just put a close on that, I felt the guilt as a seven-year-old to come back around and say, well, I could could ignore it and forget about it, or I could just own I was mean. I wasn't very nice. And as we go back to our story in Philemon, it it comes full circle to this in verse 8. Paul's writing, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, he has every right as the apostle, as a a leader, as the spiritual well-being, I have every right to command you to do what is right. I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. So he goes from, I could command you, but instead I'm going to appeal to you. I, Paul, an apostle, a big deal man, no, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of love for my child whom I fathered while in chains, Onesimus. And if you've ever read a letter or you've ever read a book and you read it and you don't like it, you tend to just drop it or pick up your hands and walk away. And in this setting, if you have Phil sitting there and a Paphia right with him and Aricopus, and you panned out and you saw that other person, you all of a sudden know who this other character is. It's Onesimus. It's Onesimus, and we don't quite know 
Who is this Onesimus? You father this Onesimus. Who is it? You appeal out of love. What is love? Love is not a choice. If we jump backwards in our scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which was one of the most famous read uh, text at weddings, it's actually not even about weddings at all. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, Paul is speaking about the different types of gifts. In 12, he speaks about the gifts, the spiritual gifts, and he says there's actually something better than all the spiritual gifts ever. And he says the greatest thing in all of those is love. And he spends a whole chapter dedicated on what is love, that even if you don't know your spiritual gift, if you have love, it trumps all the gifts. And he's saying it's better than them because it's a way that people know who we are. He says, love is this. If I speak in the languages of men, tongues, and of angels, but don't love, I'm a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so I can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, if I'm super generous and give my body to be burned but don't love, I gain nothing. And you can have everything. You can have all the gifts. You can have all the general, all of it. And if you don't love, you are Zippo. He goes, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not conceited. It does not act improperly. It's not selfish. It is not provoked. It does not keep a record of wrongs. It finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Here's a cool one. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And he's saying the greatest of the gifts is not really the gifts, it's love. It's care for other people. It's how we treat one another. It's how we do life together. And he's saying, I appeal to you on that basis, Phil, and your household in the church. And I appeal to you on account of Onesimus, who my father while in chains, which he literally was in chains, who he literally somehow, some strange concoction, Onesimus finds himself the slave of Phil, all the way to Rome. And as he finds his way to Rome, he loses probably all of it. We don't quite know what, how that transpired. But he somehow mysteriously, and I don't think coincidentally or mysteriously, I think God-ordained way, found his way to the church who connected him to Paul, who changed his whole life and his whole trajectory. And I have to think that it started with Phil because in Phil's house was the church. In Phil's house was the care and love for other people, living and demonstrated. I don't think Phil was some harsh taskmaster or some slave master who beat and tore out and did everything to the slaves. I think he treated them quite fairly, more than likely. I think he was quite honest with them. I think Phil or Onesimus didn't want to be there. And Onesimus had his own arrogance and pride and wanted it for himself. And so Onesimus takes the money and runs and it says so. I am sending him a part of myself. So Paul attaches something to Onesimus. He says, I'm sending him. He's a part of me. He represents me. If you like me, if you think good about me, think good about him. A part of myself back to you. I wanted to keep him so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. And I skipped verse 11, which said, once he was useless to you, but now he's useful to both you and me. I wanted to keep him with me because he's become valuable, because he has changed. And Paul, being the apostle, discipler, who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, says he's changed. He's, he was useless. I agree with you, Phil. He was absolutely awful and useless. He took your money and run. But he's become very useful. In verse 14, I, I love this because he kind of gives it a, a back to him, kind of the mic drop moment. 
but I don't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. He's saying, oh, I'm going to give you the opportunity, Phil, to do the right thing. And if you're Phil, you're probably like, why didn't you keep him? I don't want him. I've been hurt by him. And if you're reading that letter in that room and it pans out and you see Onesimus probably just shaking his head down, his head's down, because somewhere when Paul wrote this, his letter wasn't to Phil, it was to the church in Colossae. And Philemon is back way on the peripheral. And Onesimus has got to know, I've done him wrong. And when Paul starts talking about, I'm going to send a letter to the church in Colossae, I'm betting Onesimus says, I'll take the letter. And by the way, could you give me a letter of recommendation, Paul? That would go really well because I've done him wrong. And Paul probably asked him, what'd you do? And he probably told him what he did. And that's sometimes our greatest fear that when we do something wrong, we're afraid. Will people still love me? Will they still care for me if they know what I've done? If they know who I am, that's what groups are all about. You risk getting to be known. The quirky side of you, the weird side of you, we all got those weird sides. Will they still like me when they know what I wrestle with, what my sin issues are? Because we've all got sin issues. Some are just more out in the open than others. But Paul says, but all right, Onesimus, I'll send you. And I'm going to send you with a letter. And so, Phil, that you can do the right thing. I'm not going to force you to say, oh, I've kept him. I got your slave. He changed. I'm going to actually put the ball in your court to actually live out right in front of everybody in the church your faith. For perhaps this is why he was separated, Paul said, from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. This is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And Paul's just laid it on thick at this point. No, he was useless to you. Now he's useful. You know, I, I was going to just keep him, but I want you to be able to do that and forgive him. So if you consider me... Accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you, verse 18, you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And there's where Paul takes the pen. Tim's probably writing this, and we don't get it to see it from here because it's all the same font in your Bibles or version Bible app. It's all the same font, but the font would have changed here. The writing style would have changed at this next sentence. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then he just throws this ad in, not to mention you, you would kind of owe me even your own self. Because if I didn't come to Colossae, if I didn't start that church, you wouldn't know Jesus. So Paul, I know you know the right, or Phil, I know you know what to do. And by the way, I'll pay it back. Whatever he has taken from you, I'm going to take it and I will pay it back. And this is my own hand. You see, it's not even Tim's hand, it's mine. I vouch for Onesimus. Amidst the pain and the hurt that he has caused you and run, He's made you feel foolish. He's embarrassed you. He's hurt you financially in some way, shape, or form. We don't know what Onesimus did. We just know he took something and he ran. He left and he hurt Philemon and all of his household. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ since I am confident in your obedience. I'm writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. He's like, don't just forgive him, but yeah, man, welcome him into the brotherhood. Welcome him to church just like you would me. And I know you're going to do actually above and beyond. And meanwhile, prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers, I'll be restored to you. How did Paul know about Philemon and the house church? Probably Onesimus. 
more than likely Onesimus talked about it, what went on, what his experience had been. And Paul was probably encouraged by what he had heard. That church in Ephesus started, the church in Colossae started from there, and then a small little podunk house church of small groups started. Because churches back in the day were churches. This is, we're actually a mega church considering comparative to the New Testament church. They weren't this big. They were just a small group of people. Onesimus talked about it. And it probably had an impact about Philemon and all the household building into him. And he says, meanwhile, I also prepare guest rooms that if I get out your prayers, I will be restored to you. And then Paul goes, oh, and by the way, Epaphras, who delivered the letter to the church in Colossae, if you don't take my word for it then, Phil, if you just don't want to give me the benefit of the doubt, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner of Christ Jesus, he also greets you. So does Mark, you know, the gospel of Mark, that guy. He also, so does Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, the other gospel of Luke. Yeah, my coworkers. So if you don't want to take my word for Onesimus and his change, just talk to them. They'll say the same thing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And you've got to zoom out and go to that moment as if they're reading the letter that they've just received, and they've got to be thinking the years, possibly years of hurt, financial setbacks. What are they going to do? Notice how the letter ends. We don't know what was done. That in that moment, it's kind of those, those movies I don't like where they just end and it leaves you cliffhanging, like, what's it going to end? What's it going to be? There was an old a movie years ago, Leonardo DiCaprio plays it, and it's in the mind, and there's like, they have this little gad, this little token, they call it. It's dream world, it's sci-fi. And, and you have this token that no one else knows, so that when you come out of the dream, you, you spin your token or you do something with it, so you know, am I in the dream or am I in the real world? You can't, because it's so hard to tell the difference. No one else knows. And the movie ends, this guy has a top that spins one of those old school tops. And so at the very end of the movie, you don't know if it's in a dream or what, he spins the top. And the top continues to spin. But if it was in a dream, the, the top would stop. If he was in the dream, it would keep spinning. Well, the way the movie ends, it keeps spinning, but it kind of like does that little flutter, like, is it going to drop? And it's like this, you don't know, but then it goes to credits. And it's like, that's wrong. <laughs> is he, is he not? Can we just tell the story? Can we just know how this ends? And, and I go back to this, this final point, which is this, that truly loving others happens when we remember that we deserved a death penalty, that we needed a mediator, and that our debts, we needed our debts paid. That to truly love others, we remember what we ourselves needed. And then we can truly love them. Because we keep that at the forefront, that it's not my position or title, it's who I am in Christ. What does he call me to do? He called me to love others. He didn't tell me to love the people that like me or that I get along with. He told me to love others. And that means the people that I don't like, that have hurt me, that have wronged me. I forgive, not forget. And I think it goes back to this other part that Phil did a great job discipling Onesimus, in my opinion, because Onesimus ran back to the church. And had Philemon not done his part in loving others well, if that church hadn't, Onesimus would have never experienced that and understood that self-sacrificing manner. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that we should be the most pitied of all people, Christians, if it's not true. But if it is true, then we have all to gain. And so Philemon lived out his faith in such a practical manner that it was talked to to Paul, and Paul heard it. And Onesimus finds himself at this worst of the worst, finally got his two-by-four moment humbled by Paul. As weird as that is, as strange as it is, how did he find Paul in a 
hundreds of thousands of people city in the slums, he magically just happens? No, I think he found the church. He went searching. And I think as he found the church, he got connected to Paul. And as he got connected to Paul, he learned more of who Jesus was and what he's about and what the church was about that Philemon was doing. And he recognized a wrong that needed to be made right. And he said, I just, I have to go back. The risk is immense. He could brand me. He could whip me. He could kill me because I am a slave. Paul, could you just send me a letter? Like when you're going, I'll go too. But could you just write me a letter of reference? That might go a long way. And the story ends, and we don't know how it ends, but we have a thought about how it does end. At the end of Philemon, we don't know, again, as it says, what all transpired. It says this, was this the end of the story? Surely not. Onesimus and Philemon went on to lead even more productive lives for Christ. Many believe that Philemon, in defense to Paul's expressed desire to have Onesimus back, returned him to Paul in Rome, where he further developed into a great man of God. The historical evidence is most suggestive of this. Fifty years later, when Ignatius, one of the great church Christian martyrs, was being transported from Antioch to Rome to be executed, he wrote letters to certain churches. In writing to Ephesus, the bigger church, he praised their bishop, Onesimus, even making the same Pauline pun on his name. It appears likely that Onesimus, the runaway slave, had become, with the passing of years, the great bishop of Ephesus, this is one of the great stories of the gospel of the Church of Christ. The belief is, is that Philemon forgave him instantly, welcomed him into his household as brother of Christ, sent him back to Paul to train and learn, and then he becomes a church father, a great pastor and leader of the church back in the day. This slave who got experienced with Philemon first. How does that tie into serving? Where do you think I'm going with this? You see, serving is all about ministry because that's what ministry is. Ministry is not up here what I'm doing right now. Ministry, this is part, yes. Ministry is serving. It's using your God-given talents, your hands and feet to invest in the lives of other people. And I've got to think that Philemon built into Onesimus was hurt severely by him when he took off and ran, having no idea how it would come full circle back and having no idea God's intentions and plans. And you see, when you serve, you have no idea who you're going to affect who you just by smiling as the kids enter the door and you're a greeter, who you're smiling as people walk in these doors, sitting in the parking lot, when you clean toilets, when you put up drywall and you patch a million holes in this facility, when you run wires, when you rip down trees. I, I do like trees, but people think I don't. I do. But when you do these things and you rub shoulders with people and you invest in them, you have no idea the long-term impact that will have. How did Nick Dunn, 35 years of age, become the pastor of New Hope Church? Well, you have to trace it back to the people in Israel who invested in me. You have to trace it back to a youth pastor and youth leaders who invested in me. You have to trace it back to Peggy May, my Sunday school teacher growing up, who invested and poured into me. Trace it back to my parents as well and give them credit for putting me in a position and not beating me senseless for doing the dumb things that I did. But it's those investments, it's serving, it's saying, this, is this meaningless? Is this meaningful at all that I sit in nursery and play with toddlers? Oh, it has life-changing, kingdom-advancing changes. Because you have no idea who's in our nursery or the kids that are in this room. Who's going to be the next pastor? Or who's going to be the next CEO of some business who's going to be able to share their faith with people there? Who's going to be able to come alongside others and walk through them with grief? 
You see, your life matters. Your impact matters. Serving matters because it's the lifelong ripple effect. You have no idea. You talk to my Sunday school teachers, they would say, Nick Dunn is doing what? They would never put me on stage. They would never put me up here. My youth pastor the same way. Nick, you sure about we're talking about the same Nick? But it's the investment. And I have to think through all of this that Philemon was shocked and stunned when he sees Onesimus walk through the door and hands him a letter. And as he sits down to read the letter, Onesimus just standing off to the side saying, please don't beat me, please don't beat me. And afterwards, probably with his head down, tears because he knows he's wronged them. And when you become a Christian, all of a sudden your conscience starts to rear its head and you're like, oh, I have so royally screwed so many things up. And the more you know Christ, the more you develop, you're like, man, I continue to screw up. And yet God says, yep, I know. Keep coming back. It's a process. You'll get through it. And that's what we're about. And then to probably see Onesimus as his head's hung low to probably Philemon and Aphia just looking at him and saying, let's give him a big hug. Come on, welcome in, brother, and forgiving him and saying, all right, let me give you some more money and send you back to Rome. Go back to Paul. Go back and learn. Continue to be with him. He wants you there. Then we're going to send you back and talk more about what we're doing. And maybe have a few questions. I don't know. It matters. It matters where you serve. It matters what you do with your life. It matters who you impact. You don't know this side of heaven, all that you will do. I have no idea where my Kramer is, but I feel very good about apologizing. I feel like that door's closed. Yes, I still remember it, but it's the whole, it's not still lingering. And I had the opportunity to go back. So maybe you have wronged someone that you maybe need to say sorry to today or this week. Or maybe you're like, you know, maybe I just need to step up and serve a little bit. Maybe it's here at New Hope in some form or way. And if you don't know, nothing on that list works. Just write your name on the connect card. Say, Nick, can we talk? Sure. But maybe it's just trying to step out and see, where do you you want from me, God? And asking honestly, who have you placed in my life who I maybe need to apologize to or maybe that I need to start investing into? Who is that? This morning, don't leave without thinking of that name and making it a point to do something. Don't just sit and agree, but do something with it this week. Find a place to serve. Find a group to join. You're still new, still unsure. That's Just keep coming. Just be present. I always say I'm going to end this series this way because we start John next week. Keep showing up. That's 25% of the battle. Just show up to church. Start giving something. Whether it's 10%, whether it's not, if you've never done start, if it is, maybe you up at 50%. Join a group, some sort. Maybe it's not one of these groups. Maybe, okay, I get with my work. I can't do these, but I can't get with a group. Group. Fourth, serve. Find a place. Calling. And it might be short-term. It might be seasonal. That's okay. You do those four. It's not magic. It's not that your life's going to get perfect, but you're going to grow in Christ-likeness because you're investing in other people. You're giving open-handedly, living generously. You're living life together within community, and you're worshiping as the body of Christ. Because it ain't about me. It ain't about the worship team here. No, it is about Jesus. That's why we gather. That's why we teach the scriptures, because it's about him.